Bible. But tonight, you get a Christmas message, and you get another one again Sunday morning. But this is the direction that I felt the Lord would have me to go this evening. Talk tonight on responding to Christmas. Responding to Christmas. Matthew chapter 2. Let's look beginning at verse number 1 through verse 12 as we talk about responding to Christmas. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, or magi, depending on if you have a different translation that you're looking at. It says, Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. Right of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately or secretly called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now let me just pause for a moment and notice it says that there's a young child that say a baby. So Jesus is a little bit older here. This is not the exact time of his birth. This is probably much, maybe up to a year later when they come and they see Jesus. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And let me just say something here about the star. This is a supernatural event that takes place. That God wants these people to find His Son. God wants these men to find the Savior, but they can't find the Savior until God leads them and brings them to where the Savior is. Isn't that like it is when it comes to our salvation? That we can't find Jesus until God shows us and draws us and brings us unto Himself. God has to intervene for us to be saved. Amen? Verse 11. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Responding to Christmas. As you think about the holidays, as you think about the Christmas season, it stirs up all kinds of emotions, reactions, and responses in people. You have some people that they're bubbling over with joy. They are jolly and they are happy and they are excited about this time of year. They love this time of year. They pull out all the stops. They decorate their home. They've got a tree in every room. And they just go all out because they're excited and joyful and happy about this time of year. But you have others that they're sad and they're hurting because they're lonely or This time of year stirs up painful memories of the past or they're having to face the first time, go through this season without a loved one being here. And so for some, this is a painful season and a lonely season and a hurtful season. 
You've got some, they act like Ebenezer Scrooge. They have a bah humbug attitude. They're miserable all the time. And they want everybody else around them to be miserable all the time. Instead of spreading Christmas cheer, they go around spreading something else. And it's not good. But you've got some that this time of year they're angry. Because you talk about God this time of year. You mention Christmas or we're living in days where you don't say Merry Christmas anymore because you don't want to offend people. And when you say Merry Christmas to some people, they get upset. They get agitated and irritated because you're trying to keep Christ in Christmas. All kinds of emotions, all kinds of responses this holiday season. Well, as we look at our text, we see that there were some reactions and responses from three different individuals or three groups to the birth of Jesus. And here's what's interesting. The same way that people responded over 2,000 years ago to the birth of the Savior, people are responding the same way today. And so in this message tonight, we're going to look at the three responses of the first Christmas. We're going to look at how people responded and reacted to the birth of Jesus and see where you and I fit in and, we're, and see where people of this world fit in today. The first thing I want you to notice tonight is as we look at Herod, and that's this. Herod opposed Jesus and sought to destroy Him. Herod opposed Jesus and sought to destroy Him. We pick up in verse 3 and we read these words. It says, Herod the king heard these things and he was troubled. The wise men show up on the doorsteps of the palace. They come to King Herod and they say, Where is the king of the Jews? Where is this baby that has been born? We've come to worship him. And the Bible says that when Herod hears these things, he is troubled. That word troubled, it means distressed. It means agitated. It means to become anxious. It means to become restless. And so you have to ask the question, why does Herod become troubled? Here's why. He didn't want anybody to take over his kingdom. He didn't want anyone threatening his rule and his reign and his power. He didn't want anybody to step on the scene and overthrow him and take away his kingdom. You see, Herod was overly protective of his position and he was jealous of anyone that would be a possible Threat. You said Herod couldn't tolerate others rivaling his power and he was paranoid about people plotting against him. He always thought people is trying to take my place, take my kingdom, take my throne and he was a little paranoid. He struggled with power. He struggled with his identity. And if he thought anybody was trying to get the best of him, he, he dealt with them. In fact, one commentator said this about Herod. Secular history records that he murdered many in his own family, including his favorite wife. And here's the thing, he, he had ten of them. But he murdered his favorite wife. Killed her grandfather, her brother, and even three of his own children. He, he killed three of his sons because he didn't want them to take his throne. On one occasion, Herod even had the whole Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Jewish government, he even had all of them assassinated at one time. That's how this man was. He was a madman. He was a, he was a savage of a man. He was a beast. 
And so anybody who got close to claiming power and claiming authority, taking anything away from him, they, he, he dealt with them. He, he got rid of them. He stamped them out. And so when you've got, three, uh, so when you've got these visitors from the east coming, looking for the king of the Jews, you can just imagine how Herod reacted. At first he says he wants to go worship the child. He says, hey, when you find out where the child is, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. But actually, he wanted to find Jesus. He wanted to find the child and kill him. And he wanted to solidify his place on the throne. There was no place for Jesus in his life. And so he opposed Jesus and sought to destroy him. Verse 16 tells us what took place. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. He was exceedingly angry and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Herod didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He opposes him, he rejects him and he's trying to take his life, trying to destroy Jesus. Now here's the thing about Jesus that even at his birth, even as a child, Jesus hadn't taught a lesson yet. He hadn't worked a miracle yet. He's simply been born. He's a young child. And he's already threatening his enemies. And Jesus hadn't done anything yet but be born. The very thought of Jesus, the Messiah, made Herod angry. He rejected any idea or any notion that another person was going to have the power and dominion over him. And may I say that Herod's attitude and Herod's response is still alive today. That we live in a world where many hate the name of Jesus and oppose the name of Jesus and they're doing everything they can to get rid of it. In fact, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Netflix came out with a show where they're portraying a homosexual Jesus. And the disciples are nothing but a bunch of drunkards. We're living in messed up days where people do not want Jesus. They oppose Him, they reject Him, and they're trying to do away with Jesus. Why? Because they don't want His authority over their life. They don't want His control over their life. They don't want to submit their will to His will. And so they oppose Him and try to stamp Him out and remove Him from history. But you hear me, you can't remove Jesus. You can fight Him, you can try to plot against Him, but you can't remove Jesus. He didn't get voted in and He can't get voted out. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He will rule and reign forever. But the attitude of many today is do away with Jesus. And they oppose Him and try to destroy Him. I pray tonight that's not the attitude and our response to Jesus. But I want you to notice secondly how the Jews, the priest, responded. We see the Jews ignored Jesus and missed Him. The Jews ignored Jesus and missed Him. Got a blanket wrap up. You get cold wrap up. Cause my voice to go out. Look at verse 3 through 6. It says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. And notice all Jerusalem 
with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said to him, notice, they know the scripture. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of you shall come a governor that shall rule my people, Israel. So Herod is troubled, and all of Jerusalem is troubled. I can understand Herod's position. I can understand why he's disturbed, why he's anxious. anxious. He doesn't want anybody to take his throne. He doesn't want anybody to take his power away from him. But why is Jerusalem troubled? You see, they've been promised a Messiah. They had the Old Testament Scripture. They had the promises of God reminding them that a Redeemer was coming, a Messiah was coming that would bring deliverance and rescue to them. They should have been looking for Him. They should have been expecting Him and longing for Him. They should have went and celebrated with the wise men. But instead, they are King Herod, he asked him, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where, where's the Christ going to be born? And what did the text say? They know the answer. They know the scripture. They can give chapter and verse. They've studied it. They know a Messiah is coming. And they promptly respond and say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But here's what's so sad. It was in their head, but not in their heart. It was nothing more than a theory to them. You would expect in the next verse to read them running off to Bethlehem, trying to find the Christ child, and worshiping Him. But is that what happened? No. They gave Herod the answer that he needed, and then went about their business, went back to their own lives, untroubled, unconcerned with the news they received. You see, they knew the right answer, but they didn't respond rightly to the birth of Jesus. Think about this. Do you see any verse that says anything about the Jewish leaders going to Bethlehem? Nothing about it is there. So they knew the right answers from the Bible. They, they knew the prophet Micah and what he said. But they didn't do anything about it themselves. There's no record that they rejoiced. There's no record that they went to see him and worship him and celebrate him. In fact, some of these same men were probably the ones who a little over 30 years later would become jealous of him and put him to death. See, their attitude should have been one of longing. It should have been one of expectation. They should have said, hey, the Messiah's here. Let's go see this child. But instead, they give the answer and go about their business. They ignored Jesus and they missed Him. But here's what the Bible says in John 1.11. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. He came to His people, and they didn't receive Him. They missed Him. They knew He was the one. They knew what the prophecies had foretold. They ignored Him and missed Him. Well, may I say tonight that that same attitude is still 
around today? You see, there are those today who don't oppose Jesus. They just ignore Jesus. They've heard about Him. They know the truth concerning Him. They know He's the Savior. They know He's born of a virgin. They know He died on the cross. They know He loves them. He came to die for their sins. But they refuse to acknowledge Him. They refuse to commit their life to Him. They aren't against Him, but they're not for Him. They're uncommitted. They're apathetic. And as a result, they're going to miss Him just like the Jews did. You see, Jesus is coming again. I believe Jesus is going to return to this world one day. And everybody who's decided to remain neutral and ignore Him will miss Him. And I want to give a word of warning here that those of us sitting here this morning and those of us who sit here on Sunday mornings need to listen to this word because if we aren't careful, this is where we can fall short. See, just like the priest, we've all heard the right answers for most of our lives. And it's easy to think that because we know the right answers, we're right with God. But you hear me well, simply knowing the truth does not save you. James chapter 2 tells us that the demons know the right things about God. James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Can I tell you something? Satan is not an atheist. Neither is he agnostic. He believes there is a God and the devils of hell believe there is a God. They know the right things. They have the right answers. In fact, I would submit that probably the devil and his demonic angels probably have better theology than most of us. They probably know this book better than most of us. But because they know the facts about Jesus and just because they know what this book says don't mean they're saved. Here's the thing, you can know it up here, but if it never reaches down into here and makes a difference in your life, or you turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you'll be left behind, you'll miss Jesus. You see, Christianity is more than just learning about things and learning stuff and filling our minds with more information and more knowledge. It's about applying what you know and living it out. You see, there's a lot of people who feel like they're right with God because they believe all the right things. They know about Jesus. They know the facts. In fact, there's a lot of people who've grown up in the church of God. You know the declaration of faith. You know what we believe. You know all the details of the Christmas story. You can quote verse after verse of Scripture. But you have to understand real worship and real faith. It's not just a matter of having the right facts in your mind. The Jewish priest had that. But there's no evidence that they worship Jesus. They missed Him. We've got to be confronted about this truth this evening. That just because you can quote John 3.16 doesn't mean you're saved. That just because you know the Christmas story doesn't mean you're going to heaven. That just because you know things about Jesus doesn't mean everything's okay between you and God. You can know all the right things and still be lost. 
And that's sad. And that's tragic. There's going to be a lot of people who know what this book says. They know the right things. And will still end up lost. Still end up missing Jesus. They're not rejecting Jesus. But simply holding on to what they know intellectually. And thinking that's enough. One commentator, he said this, he said, Let us all beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. It's an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it, and it perish everlastingly. You see, I've heard it said before, there's going to be a lot of people that's going to miss heaven by 18 inches. Get it in their head, but not in their heart. And they're going to miss heaven. The most important question for you this evening is, Not do you know the right things about the birth of Jesus. Not do you know the stories. Not do you know the facts. But have you repented of your sins and trusted Him as Savior and Lord? That's the most important thing we could ask. I want you to see a third thing this evening. The wise men sought Jesus and worshipped Him. The wise men sought Jesus and worshipped Him. We see in verse 2, Where is He that is born King of the Jews? We have seen a star in the east and are come to worship Him. Then verse 10 and 11, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped Him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to Him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. There's a lot that we don't know about these wise men. We're not sure exactly how many there were, but let me say this, most likely there were more than three. I know we talk about we, three kings of Orion and we put the nativity things up, the three wise men around. Most likely there was more than three, probably closer to 70. They wouldn't have traveled in that such a small group in that day. They would have come with a crowd. We just surmised because there was three gifts, there had to be three. We know they had to travel a great distance to get to where Jesus was. Probably somewhere around 300 miles, maybe even more in that day to get to where Jesus was. And guess what? They didn't have an air-conditioned automobile to get there. These aren't Jewish men that show up. These are Gentiles. Pagan. And let me just say this. It says wise men in the King James, New King James, but it's translated magi. They are astrologers. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me that God would use a star to lead them as they study the heavens. It was a supernatural event that led them. They saw, text says, His star, Christ's star rising in the east. And they followed so we don't know a whole lot about them, but we do know why they came. They came with one purpose. They came with one goal, and that was to worship the King. They came to give gifts to Him. They came to bow down and humble themselves before Him and give honor and praise to this child. They traveled great distance. Probably faced some danger along the way, but they said, Jesus is 
worthy to be praised. So they sought Jesus and they worshipped Him. And I would say to us this evening that, that wise people still seek Jesus. And they still worship Him. I want to take a moment and look at their worship and share with you just three things about the worship that should be true of our worship. I want you to notice first of all, their worship was joyful. Their worship was joyful. It says when they arrived at the place where they would find Jesus, they were overcome with emotion. We see in verse 10 that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It has the idea of exuberant excitement. I can just see them in my mind. They're they're shouting, they're laughing, they're jumping, they're crying. They're rejoicing at the thought of seeing Jesus. Filled with excitement, filled with emotion, filled with passion and rejoicing, filled with praise and filled with wonder at the idea of seeing the Christ child. I would say to us tonight that our worship should be exciting. Our worship should be joyful. Our worship should be full of life. It should be full of energy. I don't believe worship should be dead, dull, or boring. Why is it so many times though we come to church and act like it's a funeral service and not a celebration? There's nothing wrong with being joyful in worship. I mean, the Bible tells us repeatedly, shout unto the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Rejoice always. There's nothing wrong with having some emotion and passion in our worship. Listen, we'll we'll holler over uh, somebody who scores a touchdown. We'll holler over somebody who can hit a baseball out the park. We'll holler when our kids and grandkids make a basket or score a goal. We'll get excited about that. And then come sit in church like God never did anything for us. We act like God is dead. And so we come and act like we're dead. Listen, I can promise you heaven is anything but dead. I promise you heaven is lively and energetic and full of rejoicing. And it's probably not too quiet. The Bible tells us to shout unto Him in praise. It tells us to clap our hands. It tells us to lift our hands in worship. It tells us to come before His presence with singing. It even tells us to praise Him with the dance. We shouldn't be ashamed to give God visible, vocal worship. We shouldn't be ashamed to be excited over what God has done for us. And I don't know what God did for you, but I know what He did for me. I know where He bought me from. And, and listen, I'm not going to be ashamed to worship Him. I'm not going to be ashamed to praise Him. I'm not going to be ashamed to give Him glory. Listen, He put a joy down on the inside of my soul. He gave me a song that the angels can't sing. And I'm going to worship Him and praise Him and give Him glory that is due unto Him. We should feel free to come into this place and worship and rejoice over who He is and what He's done. The worship was joyful. But I want you to notice something else about the worship. The worship took humility. The worship took humility. Verse 11 tells us 
that they entered the house, they saw the young child and they fell down and they worshipped him. Now get this picture in your mind. You've got grown men bowing before a child, giving him worship. That took humility. Grown men bowing before a child that Brother Paul, he's never taught a sermon yet. Never healed a sick person yet. Never done any great wonders for any eye to see. And yet for some reason as they beheld that young child, they knew that there was something inside of him that caused them to bow down and worship. That took humility. That took them laying aside their pride that took them laying aside their reputation so they could worship Him. You see, in the Bible, when people would worship the Lord, you'll find it throughout Scripture, they'd often fall down and worship Him. In fact, the element of falling to the ground, it's an integral part of the Bible word for worship. The idea of worship in the Bible. It means to fall towards someone, to bow and kiss towards one. You're worshiping like giving obeisance to the king. How many has ever seen those movies and the king uh, kind of stretch out their hand with the ring on it and somebody bows? That's the idea of worship. You bow before God as though you're giving obeisance. So the very word for worship in the Bible means humbling yourself towards the object of your worship. You see, real worship involves humbling ourselves before God. You can't worship and be proud and arrogant at the same time. You see, if we're really going to worship God, we've got to have humility in our lives. You see, we can't let our pride remain enthroned and worship God at the same time. Real worship humbles us. But the problem with so many of us is we're trying to play it both ways. We're trying to worship God on one hand and still trying to keep our pride intact on the other. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to worship God, you've got to bow before Him. You've got to come in reverence. You've got to come in humility and get rid of your pride and stop worrying about your reputation what other people think. A good question for many of us to ask ourselves is this. When is the last time I humbled myself in worship? When's the last time you got down on your knees before God? When's the last time you went to the altar at the invitation? Oh no preacher, I can't do that. People might say something if I go to the altar. When's the last time you made a physical demonstration of worship before God when we were singing? I'm not saying you have to do these things all the time, but these are some ways you can humble yourself in worship. You can bow before Him. Genuine worship involves humbling oneself before the King. Here's a third thing about their worship. Their worship was costly. Their worship was costly. Their worship wasn't cheap. It cost them something. They traveled a great distance to get to where Jesus was, so we see that it cost them their time. They traveled hundreds of miles to worship Jesus, but they made the trip, paid the price, because they deemed Jesus worthy of worship. It cost them their time. 
Can I say to us tonight that if we're going to worship, it's going to cost our time? And I'm not just talking about the little uh, bit of time we spend here Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but I'm talking about an investment of your time every day that you live. Because you hear me and hear me well, worship is a lifestyle, not an event you attend. Worship is a lifestyle, not an event you attend. Some of us don't worship when we leave on Sundays. We think that's the end of it. No. You wake up on Monday, you need to worship. On Tuesday, you need to worship. Every day of your life, you need to worship. It is a lifestyle. It takes time to pray. It takes time to read the Word. It takes time to get right to even come into the house of God. Real worship is an investment of time. It's going to cost you some time. Do you realize that a few came Sunday morning for Sunday school, stayed through preaching and came back Wednesday night, at most you ain't got about three hours a week invested. Some people think that's too much. What you going to do when you have all of eternity to spend with you? Some people think an hour on Sunday's enough. And then we wonder why we come to church and God don't seem to move. Why we don't have any power, don't have any anointing, don't have any life being changed is because we don't invest no time throughout the week. Listen, you show me somebody who shows up in public and they worship God and God blesses them, God touches them, I'll show you somebody who's been alone with God in private. They didn't just wait till Sunday morning to try to turn it on. They've been with God through the week. It takes time. It takes time to repent of our sin and get our hearts clean. I don't know, maybe if we spent Monday through Saturday trying to deal with some of the junk in our life that we allow to accumulate and pile up and don't deal with, maybe we could have a breakthrough in here on Sunday morning. Oh, preacher, that's too much time. I got things to do, places to be, people to see. But yet you let have people in a miracle. You let people in a breakthrough. Or let their kids go crazy. And they want an instant miracle. And God can do instant miracles. But wouldn't it be so much easier if you spent time with Him every day of your life? You wouldn't have to try to beg and plead and try to find a way into His presence. If you spent time with Him every day, dealing with stuff in your life and staying close to Him, listen, you wouldn't have to try to keep trying to refine the path to His presence. You could just step in. From the time you open your mouth, Father... You just step in. It becomes easier to pray if you spent time already consistently praying. But let me just say this, and I don't want to get too off track, but here's the thing. If you ever go weeks or months without praying and then try to start praying again, I promise you, it's going to be a struggle for you because you're trying to learn the pathway again. Connect with God. Can you see why our churches have such problems today? Why we can't have revival and why we can't have a move of God? It's because we're too busy 
letting everything else keep us from Him. Not only did it cost them their time, it cost them their treasure. Preacher, you going to talk about me needing to give some money? Yes, I am. The Bible says when they entered that house, they presented gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those weren't cheap items. Those were expensive items. They thought Jesus was worthy of their gifts. I want to say to us tonight that God has been extravagant to us in His giving. We ought to be extravagant in our giving to Him. If we're going to truly worship Him, listen, we've got to see giving as an act of worship. And it's going to cost us something. And at times we need to do it sacrificially. Because real worship is costly. It costs our time. It costs our treasure. And I believe we need to invest into God, into His work. Because everything we have comes from Him anyways. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so it's a privilege to give. Let me say this, it's a privilege to have something to give. I'm glad I've got something to give. And the only reason I have anything to give is because He gave it to me. So I want to be like these wise men. I want to invest time in worship. And I want to give back to God. Real worship isn't cheap. It involves sacrifice. As I bring things to a close this evening, as we look at these characters, as we look at how they responded to the birth of Jesus, I have to simply ask you tonight, which one do you resemble the most? Which attitude do you have this Christmas? You see, every one of us here tonight, every one of you under the sound of my voice, you've been confronted with the Christ child this evening. You understand that He came into this world, that He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you have to make a response. Will we be like King Herod and oppose Jesus? Listen, if it's got to be your way and you won't let Him have dominion and authority over you, you're being like Herod. If you're on the throne of your life and Jesus can't sit on the throne of your life, guess who you are? You are Herod. Because He wasn't letting anybody take over. And that's how a lot of people are. I'm not letting anybody take over my life. I wonder tonight will we be like the chief priests and teachers of the law and ignore Jesus and remain lost in apathy. They just simply ignored Him. They knew He was there. And here's the thing. They, they would have had to travel but about five miles to get to where He was. They could have seen the Messiah. They could have seen the Christ, the Anointed One. I just shrugged their shoulders like... Oh yeah, we know what the prophecy says. No, oh, well, is that you tonight? Just kind of uncommitted, not totally against him, but you're not totally for him. You just, you just want to remain neutral. A lot of people like that. 
A lot of them sit on church pews every week. Just want to be neutral. Can I tell you, if you make a decision not to make a decision for Him, guess what? You made a decision. Or will we be like the wise men and seek Jesus and worship Him? Can I tell you, there's only one right response. There's only one right way to respond to Jesus. There's only one right way to respond to Christmas, Brother Lynn. That's to be like those magi. Go seek Jesus. Worship Him. So which attitude do you have? What's your reaction to His birth? I pray to God it's like the wise men. That you want to search for Him. And fall down before Him and give Him praise. Adoration. Stand with me.